Well, welcome back to the Bible Reading Challenge podcast. My name is Aaron Ventura, and this is episode seven of our Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation. You can find a written version of this episode along with a bunch of other free resources over at localchristendom.com. And if you have questions or other feedback, you can email me at aaronventura at gmail.com. Revelation 7 is a continuation of what happens when Christ the Lamb opens the sixth seal. The great day of the Lamb's wrath has come, and the question is, who is able to stand? John will be shown two groups in this chapter who will. First, the 144,000, and then second, the innumerable multitude. John sees four angels holding back the four winds, and before they are allowed to harm the earth, the sea, and the trees, the servants of God must be sealed on their foreheads. John then hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. After this sealing of 12,000 from the 12 tribes, John looks, and behold a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This innumerable multitude cries out with praises to God, and then the angelic host joins in worship. John is then asked by one of the elders who this vast multitude is, and John responds by saying, Sir, you know. The elder then tells him, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The sixth seal comes to an end, as the elder describes the blessed state that this multitude will enjoy. They shall neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them, and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So that's a brief summary of what you'll find in chapter 7. Let's turn now to answer three questions from this chapter. First of all, what does it mean to be sealed? Second, who are the 144,000? And then third, who are the innumerable multitude? So what does it mean to be sealed? There are two primary background passages for this sealing of God's servants. The first is the Passover event in Exodus, where those who have blood smeared on their doorposts are spared from God's wrath. The second background text is Ezekiel 9, which says, And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. In both the Passover of Exodus and this marking in Ezekiel, God's servants are protected from His righteous wrath. The seal is a mark of distinction that allows the one who is sealed to pass through the fire of God's judgment without being consumed. Instead of experiencing destruction alongside the unfaithful, the sealed survive and come out purified. Although many commentators see this seal as merely the preservation of one's faith through martyrdom, I believe this seal also physically protected these saints through the Great Tribulation. Whichever position you go with will affect how you identify the 144,000 and vice versa. So let's turn now to figure out the identity of that group. 
I'll start by giving you a few of the more common interpretations, and then I'll explain my own view. First of all, there is the universal church view or the elect view, and this was a common view in church history, and it's common in the present day amongst idealists like Greg Beale and amongst partial preterists like Doug Wilson, David Chilton, and others. So they take the 144,000 as a strictly symbolic number that represents the full number of the elect, or what we might call the universal church. They take this 144,000 to be identical to the innumerable multitude that John sees afterward. A second view is the futurist view, and there's a few different kind of views amongst futurists. And so remember that futurists are those who believe that Revelation 7 is going to take place in our future, so sometime thousands of years from now, perhaps. And they take the 144,000 as literal and descriptive of ethnic Jews who are converted to Christianity during a future-to-us Great Tribulation. Other futurists take the 144,000 as symbolic of ethnic Israel coming to faith at Christ's second coming. A third view is the symbolic Jewish view, and this view sees the 144,000 as a different group from the innumerable multitude, but they are Jewish Christians who are a symbolic all-Israel taken from each tribe. In other words, they are a faithful remnant of ethnic Jews that are brought into the kingdom. My view is that the 144,000 is symbolic, but also probably literal, and refers to a group of first century Jewish Christians who were sealed and thus saved from death in the Great Tribulation. In the Old Testament, a census was a military act that mustered God's holy army. So this is a group of 144,000 Jewish holy warriors who relaunched the church after the Tribulation. When we get to Revelation 14, which also has a group of 144,000, we will discuss whether or not that is the same group as this one. But until then, I'll summarize my view by saying, I do not believe the 144,000 is describing all the elect, but rather a subgroup within the elect who lived in the first century and hailed from each tribe. I think it is also likely that there were exactly and literally 144,000 of these saints who were physically saved from persecution. Alright, this leads to our third question, and that is, who are the innumerable multitude? We are told explicitly that these are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One of the reasons I think the universal church view of the 144,000 is wrong is because the Great Tribulation is a limited amount of time that was cut short in the first century for the sake of the elect, Matthew 24, 22. If this innumerable multitude from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues is coming out of that great tribulation, then this group must be limited to those Christians who were martyred within that time frame. So my view is that this innumerable multitude includes all those Christians from every nation under heaven who died in that great tribulation. Jesus said that prior to this tribulation, and within one generation, the gospel would first go to all the nations. In this sense, the Great Commission was fulfilled in the first century, prior to AD 66, and the New Testament itself confirms this. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 16 and Colossians 1 that the gospel had already been made known to all nations and was bearing fruit in all the world. It might seem impossible that the gospel could spread so rapidly, but remember that at Pentecost it says, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. 
and then those Jews were given the supernatural gift of speaking in their native tongues. So in less than 40 years, the gospel of the kingdom was preached to the entire world, such that Paul could apply Psalm 19 to the preaching of the word in Romans 10:18 when he says, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Church history confirms the biblical account. Philip Doddridge summarizes the evidence saying this, It appears from the most credible records that the gospel was preached in Idumea, Syria, and Mesopotamia by Jude, in Egypt, Marmarica, Mauritania, and other parts of Africa by Mark, Simon, and Jude, in Ethiopia by Candace's eunuch and Matthias, in Pontus, Galatia, and the neighboring parts of Asia by Peter, in the territories of the seven Asiatic churches by John, in Parthia by Matthew, in Scythia by Philip and Andrew, in the northern and western parts of Asia by Bartholomew, in Persia by Simon and Jude, in Media, Carmania, and several eastern parts by Thomas, through the vast tract of Jerusalem, round about unto Illyricum by Paul, as also in Italy and probably in Spain, Gaul, and Britain, in most of which places Christian churches were planted in less than 30 years after the death of Christ, which was before the destruction of Jerusalem. So the gospel explodes and reaches all the nations in less than 40 years in fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in Matthew 24:14 and Mark 13:10. But remember that Jesus also said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So whatever tribulation occurred in the first century had to have been worse than whatever genocides or persecution against Christians that have happened since then. I believe that John is seeing what amounts to almost the entirety of the first century church being put to death. This innumerable multitude of martyrs are those who remained faithful even unto death, and thus received the crown of life. I want to close by reading you a sample of passages that talk about this gospel of the kingdom going out to all the nations. Matthew 24:14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Mark 13:10, And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Acts 2.5, And then there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Romans 16.25-26, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Colossians 1, 3-6, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And then Colossians 1, 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
all of these verses were spoken or written prior to A.D. 66. Too often we read the Great Commission passages and apply them directly to us living in the 21st century. But those were Jesus' specific commands to the eleven disciples, which they literally obeyed and fulfilled. We can certainly reason by analogy and apply them to the church today, but we must not pretend that every Christian is somehow called to be an apostolic missionary to the farthest reaches of the earth. That was a unique commission that Jesus personally assigned to His disciples and one which they carried out. At the same time, we should be greatly encouraged and motivated for foreign missions when we look back and see what is possible when God's Spirit is on the church. If the entire globe was reached with the gospel in less than 40 years in the first century, why couldn't God do the same thing in our generation? It is to that end that we pray and we labor. And Amen. Well, that is Revelation chapter 7. In the next chapter, the seven trumpets will begin to sound, and we'll look at the first four in chapter 8. Until next time, keep on reading.